Hello. Welcome to Mount Pleasant. Uh, my name is Andrew Philbeck. I'm the group's pastor here. Uh, we are going to be continuing our journey through the book of Romans today. You can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 10 and find verse 5 and just hold your place there for a moment if you'd like. Uh, before we really get into any of the text that we're going to look at or the points that I want to make today, I do want to pause and just encourage you to step out in the commons after service today and have a conversation with one of the people there behind the tables about joining a group or being a part of one of our groups here at Mount Pleasant. Um, there's a couple times each year when we uh, spend a couple weekends and really make a point of being out there uh, with opportunities for you to sign up, but also just having the opportunity to ask questions and to have conversations with the people who uh, run and are involved in these ministries. Uh, one of our core four strategies here at Mount Pleasant is what we just call relational discipleship. And the main way, not the only way, but the primary way that we strive to live out that strategy is through our groups here. Uh, this is because we really believe that discipleship is all about a journey of faith that we are on much more than a destination that we reach. It's not a line that you cross uh, in your life and you become a disciple and you don't have to do anything else. It's a direction that you are constantly headed in your life of faith. And we really believe that it's a direction and a journey that you should not travel alone. Uh, I'm going to be out there to talk about home groups. I'd love to try to get you plugged into a group. I'd love to start new groups of people. Uh, Christy Brink will be out there to talk about women's ministry. Fred Meadows will be out there to talk about faith formation classes. Ken and Mary Kay Jones, I would love to talk to you about soul care. And um, Spencer Piercefield is out there to talk to you about next-gen ministry and opportunities for your students, for your kids, for your grandkids to get involved in a group here as well. So take advantage of that today. Uh, if you join a group, you're going to experience connection, you're going to experience community, you're going to grow spiritually. Uh, that's what happens when you're a part of these groups. So stop by. Okay, having said that, uh, let's refocus back to Romans chapter 10. Uh, I know that we've been doing this for several weeks now, but one of the things I want to remind you is that this is certainly not a verse-by-verse -verse study through the letter of Romans, through the book of Romans. What we're doing is taking a chapter at a time and focusing on kind of like the big idea or the main point or some kind of summary statement from each chapter in this letter and focusing on that. Uh, this really is a great way to study any book of the Bible. Uh, I remember being in Bible college, and I can't remember, I tried, I can't remember the class that it was for, but we had to do this, where we took several uh, books of the Bible, several letters written, several things like that, and we had to basically break them down chapter by chapter with very brief summaries of each chapter, just so that we had a very basic idea of what was going on. Uh, I was thinking about that a lot this week in my preparation for this message, just to help me in my understanding and study, but also hopefully to help all of us in the way that we understand this as well. So what I came up with for Romans chapter 10 uh, is certainly not a very unique statement. This is not the only place that you see anything like this in the Bible, not even in the entire book of Romans, but it's what I wanted to focus on, and hopefully as we uh, spend our time together today, you'll understand why. So uh, what I decided, uh, as a, just a, by way of like a summary statement, big idea, main point for Romans chapter 10 is simply this, God's grace is available to everyone. God's grace is available to everyone. 
If I were to tell you, if you were to ask me, you know, what's one thing that I need to remember? What's one thing I need to understand about Romans chapter 10? This is what I would say. Like I said, hopefully you'll understand why I picked this as we uh, move forward through this scripture today. Now, I want to caution you about being uh, a little dismissive when it comes to this, because I know that there's a, a chance, probably a strong chance, that if you've spent any amount of time in church, if you've, if you've grown up in church, you hear a statement like this and you kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, yeah, I, I already knew that. You know, what are you, what are you trying to tell me? Um, and I, I totally understand that. I really do. But at the same time, I think we all know that there is usually a really big difference between knowing something in our heads and having it change the way we live in our hearts, change the way we live on a day-to-day basis. Uh, when it comes to summary, this, this, this kind of big idea phrase for Romans 10, um, if we really believe this, it's going to not just, you know, increase our knowledge or our assurance of Scripture, it's going to change everything about how we live. It's not just going to make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. It's not just going to remind us about what a wonderful God we have. It's going to change both our attitudes and our actions as well. Now, my goal is to work our way mostly through the entire chapter, uh, Romans chapter 10. We're going to break it apart into three sections, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on each of them, but we're going to skip ahead and begin at Romans 10 chapter 5. We'll go back to verses 1 through 4 in a little bit, but to start things off, I just want to read Romans 10 verses 5 through 13. So, if you're able As we do each week, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read Romans 10, verses 5 through 13 from the New Living Translation. Uh, You can follow along in your Bibles or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Uh, Beginning in verse 5. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth. And don't say who will go down to the place of of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you. You may be seated. As always, we ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. What we see in this passage that I read, I'm simply just going to call the welcome. The welcome. If you like to take notes, you can write that down. Uh, This is what uh, we see here. We see Paul talk about this reality that God welcomes everyone into a relationship with him. Uh, The main reason that I I, I say this is because of what we see in verses 9 and again in verses 13. We'll uh, put that on the screen for you. Uh, Verse 9, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 13, for everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Think about the impact 
that these verses have, not just on you and me, not just on the believers in Rome that Paul wrote this letter to, but on the entire world. Okay, one of the realities that runs through Romans 9, 10, and 11, and other parts as well, but one of the realities that we see a lot in these few chapters is it deals with the history of the nation of Israel and their rejection of the Messiah. And this is one of the reasons why it's so vital for us to remember and to understand that what Paul is writing about here is the fact that not just Israelites will be saved, everyone can be saved. In fact, while there's a lot of great things here that apply to you and me today, that challenge you and me today. I'm going to try to focus on a lot of them. It would be a mistake to miss the fact that everything Paul is writing about specifically deals with the nation of Israel and their rejection of the Messiah. And so for now, for this moment, all I want us to do is simply celebrate the fact that God desires to welcome all people, regardless of your history, regardless of your class, your race, your income level, your talents, any of that stuff. Everyone and anyone has the opportunity to experience salvation with him through the gospel of Jesus. Everyone is welcome. That's why this first point is simply the welcome. One of the reasons that I love uh, Romans 10, 13 is because Paul is not even writing on his own. What he's doing is he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel. In Joel chapter two, verse 32, he writes, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the reason that I love that, the reason I want you to love that is because what this statement does, what this verse does is it continues to drive home the point. It gives more weight to the reality that welcoming all people in, into salvation has always been God's desire and God's goal. It's always been his desire and his goal. This idea of salvation for everyone is not just a new idea found only in the New Testament. God has always wanted his people to be a light that drew all people to him. That's why I give Romans 10 this very simple and yet very powerful summary that God's grace is available to everyone. And as we talk about this first point, just for a couple more minutes, I wanna do it by asking you, a question. I'm going to ask one question, but there's two parts to it, okay? And again, this is not going to be an earth-shattering question, but I think that there's a value in us spending some time really digging down deep into it. So, God's grace is available to everyone. And my question to you is simply this. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Because here's the deal. Uh, I'm sure that we could ask a lot of questions. I'm sure that there's a lot of different things that we could focus on when it comes to Romans 10 and even these specific verses. But I think the way that we answer this question, there's two sides to it, two sides, not four, two sides to it. The way that we answer this question is gonna help us see how deep into our hearts this gospel truth has really made it. And so the first side of this question that we need to think about is simply this. Do we really believe that about ourselves? God's salvation is available to everyone. Do you really believe that in your own life, about your own life? 
You see, because one of the realities that so many people, especially people who have, have been in church for a long time, who, who have grown up in the church, people who you know, know all the things they're supposed to do and all the things they're not supposed to do and, and all, all those sorts of things, is that there can be a tendency for these people to struggle with this reality that God's grace is really for them. And this is how I would, this is how I would describe it to you. And I, and I know, I know this is the way it is for so many people. It's really easy for people to believe in the power of God. It's really easy for some people to believe in the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and how that can work in someone else's life. But when it comes to really believing it for our own life and when we think about all the things that we've done and all the things that we've said and all the things that we've struggled with over the years, sometimes we're not so sure. And people, people who are well-meaning, people who are well-educated, they can struggle with their own assurance of salvation and God's unmerited favor in their life, God's grace in their life. You know, maybe they do this because they are struggling with some sort of sin and they think that their moral failure somehow discounts God's grace. Maybe they struggle with this because they're experiencing a difficult season in life and it makes them ask questions about God's mercy and God's grace and God's love that they don't typically ask. There are a variety of different reasons why this can be something that people struggle with. And it's not, it's usually not a constant struggle. It's usually like most things in life. It's a seasonal thing. There's ups and downs in life. But we have to ask ourselves this question. Do I really believe this truth about myself? Because it's really easy, especially if you've grown up in church, it's really easy to hear this truth about God and his grace and the expansiveness of his grace and believe it in a very general way. It's another thing to really embrace it in a personal way. You see, what this welcoming news of God means is that anyone listening to this right now, or even anyone who listens to this maybe years from now somehow, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's going on in your life, you can accept Jesus as your savior and you can experience the life-changing grace of God. And none of us should talk ourselves out of this by saying, you know, well, you don't know what my life is like and you don't know what I've done. Because here's the deal. While the things that we do matter to God, While the things that we do matter, none of them matter more than what God has done for us. None of them matter more than what God has done for us. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis begins a chapter with this simple statement. The son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is the overwhelming desire of God. God's heart for all of us every single person here right now listening to this somewhere every single person in the world to become children of God so the first question when it comes to this truth is do you really believe this about yourself the second question do you really believe this for other people do you really believe this for other people and I think that this is a fair question that I need to ask, that we, we need to really wrestle with in our own lives because the way that we answer it reveals how deep into our hearts the good news of the gospel message has really made it. 
Because what I want you to do for just a moment is to think about whether or not this welcoming truth for every single person in the world has changed the way you live. Has it changed anything about the way you live? Well, what does that mean? Well, how do you see people? We all have a lens through which we see the world. It, you know, we can keep it really simple. Some people see the world, you know, glass half full kind of people. Some people see the world glass half empty kind of people. Uh, some people meet uh, someone new and, and they automatically are friends. They never meet anyone that they're, they're not friends with. Some people, uh, you know, they're a little bit colder. It takes them a little bit longer to warm up to the people around them. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that we uh, see the world and, the way, and a lot of different ways that we see people in the world. But here's the deal. When you interact with someone, when you have a conversation with a friend of yours, a coworker, a neighbor, anyone, do you have these truths from Romans 10 kind of buzzing around in the back of your mind? This truth that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you have this welcoming truth at the forefront of your life? So this is the lens through which you see the world and the lens through which you see all people in the world. Because like I said, it's really easy to embrace this truth and it's really easy to want everyone to be saved in a very general way. It's easy to have a heart for lost people so long as it doesn't mean that we actually have to do anything or change anything in our own lives. Do you have a heart for your neighbor, the one that also just drives you crazy? Do you have a heart for, for your coworker, the one that's always complaining, the, ones that, the one that talks bad about other people in the office to make themselves look better? Do you still have a heart for them as a lost person that God wants to have a relationship with? Now, I know that those are just a couple of illustrations. I know that those don't apply to everyone, but this is a serious question, you see, because this truth about the expanse of God's saving grace is something that we all love. I really believe that. It's something that we all love, but I'm not sure it's something that we all embrace in a life-changing way. Uh, there is something terrible about having children. That's it. I'm just going to talk about something different right now. No, but one of the things that can be rough about having kids, and I know that you know this if you have kids, um, is that a lot of times, you know, over the course of just them growing up and dealing with the realities of them being, you know, people, is that you have to get onto them uh, at a variety of different times, either when it comes to doing something that they need to do or not doing something that they shouldn't do. And the reason that I say that this can be kind of terrible, kind of frustrating, is because if you have any self-awareness at all, most of the time you realize that when you're getting onto them, you're kind of getting onto yourself too because I know that there's lots of times in my life when I'm telling my kids things that they need to do and in the back of my mind I'm thinking, yeah, I need to do this too. Or I'm talking to them about something they need to stop doing. It's like, yeah, I need to stop doing this too. Has anyone here ever told their kids uh, to turn off the television or to turn off the screen that they're watching while you're staring at your phone? No, it's a little, you can't laugh too much at that because you don't want to give yourselves away. That's okay, I understand. But that's a reality. And the reason I share that with you is because one of the things that we tell our kids is that they can't control what other people do. They can only control what they do. And so here's the reason I share that with you today. Here's something that I think we need to embrace at any age. We can't control whether or not someone accepts the gospel. 
But what we can do is let the belief that the gospel is for everyone shape how we view the people around us, how we think about them, how we talk about them, the amount of patience that we have for them, the grace that we show them, the way that we pray for them. Does this truth that God's welcoming grace is for everyone change the way you not only see the world and the people in the world around you, but does it change the way you live your life? I wanted to skip over the first four verses in Romans 10 because I wanted to talk about this first before we did anything because I wanted to make sure that this was kind of like the centerpiece for everything else that we're gonna look at today because this truth needs to be at the heart of what we take away with us, the heart of what we're challenged with today. So now what I want us to do is go back to Romans 10. We're gonna look at verses one through four and what we're gonna see here is just what I'm calling the warning. We skipped over this so we could talk about the welcome, but what we see in Romans 10 verses one through four is the warning. I'm just gonna read this, you can follow along. Uh, Paul begins this chapter by saying, dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. See, even the end of verse four talks about the welcoming of all people into salvation the opportunity for everyone to experience salvation. Now, there are two things, I've already mentioned this a little bit, but there are two big things we need to remember when we look at and when we study Romans 10. Uh, number one is just this reality that everything that we see here was written for the nation of Israel. Paul makes it clear that it is the overwhelming desire of his heart for the nation of Israel to be saved. This is because he knows firsthand the dangers of living according to the law. He understands the way that that builds you up with a sense of self-righteousness while at the same time guaranteeing your separation from God. And the reason that I say that it guarantees your separation from God is because if you devote your entire life to following all the rules and being good enough, then what happens is you don't believe that you need a savior, but the reality is, the only way to get to God is with a savior. So if you don't think you need one, then you'll never, you'll never get to God. So number one, we need to remember that Paul is writing about the nation of Israel. The second thing that we need to remember is that this is still a warning today for you and for me. Yes, this applies to the nation of Israel. Yes, this applies to you and me. One of the most dangerous things any of us can do when it comes to studying the scripture is to look at something and think that it doesn't matter to us, that it doesn't apply to us. So what is the warning? Well, again, there's probably a variety of different things that we could talk about, but I'm trying to just break it down as simply as possible. So I'm gonna say that there's one warning and what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at two sides of that warning. We're gonna look at the external side of that warning and the internal side of that warning. And the warning is simply this, I would say what we see is zeal without knowledge. The Israelites had zeal without knowledge. 
uh, for our time of communion. Uh, I talked about the fact that when it comes to our faith, the aim of our faith is far more important than the amount of our faith. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me because I'm not talking about some idea where you just give God the bare minimum, where you give God just enough as long as you don't have to miss out on anything in this life and then you can you know, experience the best of both worlds. That's not what we're talking about. What I think about is the fact that in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus uh, talks to us about uh, how we need to simply let our yes be our yes and our no be our no. And so when it comes to salvation, you could simply say, well, do you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And you have two simple options. Yes, I do, or no, I don't. Nothing big and extravagant, no hoops you have to jump through, no, no great demonstrations of how much you believe. It's a simple yes or no. The nation of Israel, see, was incredibly zealous for God. What we see in the New Testament is not like what we see in the Old Testament. And here's what I mean by that. It, when you read through the Old Testament, especially the, the kind of famous, the familiar Bible stories of the Old Testament, what you see time and again is the people of Israel worshiping foreign gods, the people of Israel dealing with idolatry, the people of Israel worshiping and believing in someone else other than their one true God. But that's not what we see in the New Testament. They're all about the one true God, but here's the deal. Here's the reality of what that meant for them from an external standpoint. They were zealous for the laws of God, not the God who created those laws. And that is a monumental difference. I'm not splitting hairs here. They were zealous for the laws of God, not the God who created those laws. They were great at following the rules, not so great at following the ruler, okay? There's a warning here for you and me today because we can have a tendency, there can be a tendency for a lot of people in the church to, you know, through a misdirected zeal, be all about following the rules. You know, it's gonna be different than the Old Testament laws that the nation of Israel was following, but you know, at the same time, we have our checklist of, you know, doing our quiet time at the same time every day, coming to church every weekend, making sure that we serve twice a year, and on and on and on and on and on. And again, this is the thing, none of that stuff is bad. In fact, that stuff will all help you grow in your relationship with God. But if you look to the things that you do as a way to prove your rightness as opposed to the God who saves you, that makes a huge difference. And this is where we get into the second part of this warning, the internal aspect of this. And what we're just gonna kind of think about is this idea of, of the why. You know, the external problem is the behavior and the internal problem is the why behind this behavior. Because, and I mentioned this a moment ago, as far as the people of Israel were concerned, they didn't need a savior. Why? Because they had the law, and the law is what made them right with God. In fact, you could even say that they had something like the law 2.0 because of all the additions that they made. This was their own way of trying to get right with God. It was all about them, their desires to save themselves. Well, how does this apply to you and me? How does this apply to you and me? I'm gonna ask, again, there's a lot of questions in today's message. A lot, uh, hope, hopefully that helps you or makes you think uh, maybe a little bit more than you typically would, but I'm asking a lot of questions in today's message. So the question for this is just, why do you, and I'm gonna phrase it like this, why do you follow the rules? 
And what I know that's a real general statement. What I mean by that is why do you live the life you do, the Christian life that you do? Why do you follow the rules? You see, for a lot of people in our world, there is still this idea that good people are the ones that get into heaven. Good people, nice people. And one of the dangers, another one of the warnings that we need to be aware of is that we, we can't ever think that we're immune to letting this way of thinking slip into our lives or to slip into our hearts. And this is why I ask you, why do you follow the rules? Because I think for a lot of people, especially people in the church, people who are moral, upright, you know, upstanding citizens, whatever words you want to use to describe yourselves, you simply think this, well, it's the right thing to do. This is the right way to live. And the reason that this is a warning is not because that's bad, but because it's very simple for that way of thinking to slip into, well, I do what's right, so I'm right. And the flip side of that is anyone who doesn't do what's right is wrong. Let's say, you know, and, and this is something that happens for a lot of believers. You know, let's say, again, I, I kind of talked about this a moment ago, but let's say that something bad happens in your life. You're going through a, a, a season of trial, you know, whatever that means, whatever that looks like for you. Well, someone who really focuses on the rules, the first thing they're going to do is make a checklist of their life. Well, why is this happening to me? Where did I mess up? What did I do wrong? Did I forget to go to church? Did I not sing loud enough? Did I forget to tithe one weekend? Did, did, I, did I forget to, to read my Bible the way that I should have? Did I not pray enough? Did I not pray long enough? And we go through this checklist of things in our lives to try and figure out why something is happening. And it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult thing for me to illustrate in a way that I believe is simple, but also really impactful. So, so when we think about this motivation, what I want to do is I want to talk about my relationship with my wife. Uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, my wife, Karen, and I will have been married for 17 years, which is a pretty incredible thing for me to think about. And, you know, when it comes to the way that we live our lives, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, we're, we're like a lot of married couples. You know, we, we look for common interests that we have. You know, we, we love to go out on dates. We watch movies together. We get up and exercise together. We, we do these things together. But if you were to come up to me and you were to say, yeah, but, but why? Why do you do what you do in your relationship? Well, well what, if, what if this was the way I answered that question? I just looked at you and said, well, you know, it's the right thing to do. And I, and I go on and I, you know, I, I always wanted to be married. I always wanted to have a family and I want to be a good husband. And I know that if I need to, if I want to be a good husband, I need to make sure that I spend, you know, X amount of time with my wife and I need to do this, that, and the other. And it's, it's all, you know, you know, kind of good advice. It's all really honest, but it's also very clinical. But what if you say, well, why do you do the things that you do? And I just look at you and I say, because I'm in love with her. Which answer would carry more weight with you? Which answer would carry more weight with my wife? Think about that when it comes to our relationship with God as well. One of my commentaries on Romans that I was studying in preparation for this message had this to say. It says, from Romans 6, 1 through 8, 4, we know that what has ended for the Christian is being under the law as a system of salvation, which is what the Israelites were doing. 
What has not ended is our obligation to obey the law as a way to please and express our gratitude to the God who has saved us by grace. Why do you live the way that you do? What's the motivation behind your behavior? Do you try to do what is right because that's what makes you a good person, because that's what you point to as proof that you're a Christian? Or do you try to do what is right because you are so in love with the one who has saved you that you can't imagine doing anything else? I use that illustration with my wife as an example for multiple reasons, but one of which is because one of the things that we see time and again in scripture is that a marriage relationship is the type of relationship that is used to describe the connection that God wants to have with us. We see this kind of imagery all over the place. In Revelation 21, verse 2, for example, it says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus is talking about himself, and he refers to himself as the bridegroom for the church who is the bride. And this is an incredible thing for us to, to, to realize because even though, you know, we love the fact that, that we can call God friend and that we are friends of God, that's not the type of relationship that he is primarily interested in with us. He doesn't want to just be our friend or just our acquaintance. We know that, that, that Jesus is Lord and Savior, but at the same time, we know that he doesn't want to just have a boss-employee kind of relationship with us. What he wants is the closest, most personal, most intimate relationship possible with you and me. See, there's people, people all over the world who, who, who want to have some kind of connection with God, who want to go to heaven after they die, but at the same time, they want to do things on their terms. Why do they do the things that they do? Because they want to be able to say that they are right. This is a warning for you and me to not slip into that kind of lifestyle, to not slip into that kind of behavior. This was one of Israel's problems. They believed that they were the only ones right with God and that there was only one way. And the problem is there is only one way, but it's through Jesus, through salvation. They picked their own way. Number three, the witness, the witness. Real quickly, Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. I know that you are familiar with this. Paul writes, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him unless, or excuse me, if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good News. Again, Paul is writing about the people of Israel. Again, this is for you and me. These words apply to all believers who have ever lived and will ever live. I want to look at verse 14 real quickly again from the English Standard Version. It says this, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And I want to I say, and I want you to read that word preaching because it carries a certain amount of weight for us in, uh, in a church. And, and I know that there are lots of people here who, you know, volunteer for things and they serve in different ways and they love to do that and they're willing to do a lot of different things. But the idea of preaching is a whole other, a whole other idea. 
It's a whole other problem for them. But one of the things that we realize in our study of this passage is that this command is for each and every one of us. This is for all of us. And so what that means is preaching can't only mean standing on stage delivering a sermon. You see, this this word translated preaching comes from a Greek word that means to be a herald. What it is, is it's an old-fashioned way of basically saying that you're going to make an announcement. This idea was that someone would come into your town, come into your village, and make an announcement about something that had happened. Think of it like a traveling newspaper almost. You know, they would give you news about a battle that had just taken place. They would tell you that the king was on his way to visit your town or something like that. This is what you and I are called to do. This is how you and I are called to live. We are called to proclaim the victory that Jesus has won by defeating the enemy of all enemies. And the truth is, this should not be a burden. It should not even be a responsibility. It should be a joy for us to carry this truth with us everywhere that we go. Do you preach the gospel message to the people around you by the way that you talk to them? When you tell them what matters to you, when you explain to them why you do the things that you do and why you spend the money the way that you spend and on and on and on and on. Does your life reflect joy because the victory over this enemy has already occurred? You see, these passages, these words in Romans 10 verses 14 and 15, they communicate to us, to all of us, in no uncertain terms that evangelism, that spiritual influence is necessary. It's necessary, okay? And we need to remember that Paul is not writing these words to other apostles. He's not writing these words to students who have decided to become vocational ministers. He's writing these words to everyday, ordinary Christians just like you and me at the church in Rome. Another thing that I wanted to share from one of my commentaries about this passage just said this, this passage leaves us with two stark truths, that every human is responsible for how they treat the word of Christ and that every Christian is responsible for communicating that word of Christ. Toward the end of his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis spends a little bit of time um, writing about how so often what we want God to do in our lives and in the lives of the people around us is to turn us into nice people. When we become Christians, we want God to clean up our lives. We want God to sand down all of our edges to polish things up a little bit. And this is one of the reasons I believe why we focus so much of the time on, on just our physical behavior, the things that we do and the things that we don't do when it comes to you know, how we live our lives and what it means to be a Christian, what it looks like to be a Christian. And while God does want all of us, he wants all of us to change and to grow, one of the points that Lewis makes in this part of his book is the reality that God doesn't just want to make us into nice people, he wants to make us into new people. He says, it costs God nothing so far as we know to create nice things, but to convert rebellious wills cost his crucifixion. Why are you and I called to celebrate and share the welcoming grace of God for all people? Because God doesn't just make us nice, he makes us new. 
And why do we have to be warned time and again about the way we live our lives? Because the reality is so often we settle for just being made a little bit nicer, a little bit cleaner. But new is what God offers and new is what we need and new is the only hope that any of us have. A new life is what we're called to live and a new life is what we're called to share. So don't settle for a nice life don't settle for a nice life when God wants to give you a new life. When God wants to give everyone a new life. 